During this study, and especially as we now begin to dig into the text of Genesis 1 to 11, oh boy, I'll be referring often to the work of two learned scholars, John H. Sailhammer, a familiar name, and his commentary of Genesis in the Expositor's Bible Commentary, a familiar if you go into a, any pastor's office and you see a row of yellow books, that's the expositors. Oh, that's right. They changed colors, didn't they? Yes. Mine are older. That's 1990. And H.C. Leupold, which is probably my more prominent commentary for this study. H.C. Leupold from his classic work, Exposition of Genesis, 1942. The commentator John H. Salehammer points out that chapters 1 to 11 of Genesis form an introduction to the book as a whole and beyond that the entire Pentateuch, Genesis through Deuteronomy. That is no doubt true, but that's not the intended purpose or perspective of this class. The venerable scholar, H.C. Leupold, states that the purpose of Genesis is to relate how Israel was selected from among the nations of the world and became God's chosen people. Again, certainly true, but that is not our focus. Genesis can be easily divided into two sections. The first, chapters 1 to 11a, the middle of chapter 11, deal with the general history of mankind as a whole, while the second chapters, 11b to 50, deal with the special history of God's chosen people. Our elder Jake Hopper has already addressed the history of Israel in his class, Israel in the Old Testament. This class will end where his began, in the middle of chapter 11 where the generations of Shem leading to Terah and his son Abram are introduced. This class will end with the Tower of Babel and the effects of that on the people, which is discussed through verse 9 of chapter 11. The purpose of this class is to understand how it all began, why it all began, some of which we covered in the last two weeks, and what that tells us about who and what we are today for the cultural and societal roots of 2023 dwell securely in the creation epic of Genesis. The perspective of this class will be, of course, historical, for we will be examining events that occurred in the past. It will be textual, for we will be studying in detail, as always, down to the bare metal, the biblical text. But beyond that, the, the perspective will be cosmic, yet at the same time firmly rooted in the soil of this earth, just as Moses expresses in the first two verses of his magnum opus. Let's read this, the first two verses of Genesis. Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 to 2. 
beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Verse 1 is cosmic. We might paraphrase it, In the beginning God created the entire universe. The unending vastness of all that is, far more than the human mind can can encompass. Verse 1 is expansive, even a little vague. But verse 2 zooms down immediately onto our own little blue marble with, and the earth. This, This is something that I had never really latched onto before. After God creates everything that is, the universe, Genesis immediately gets down to earth and makes it clear, and we'll see that in the coming weeks, makes it clear that this is about the earth. This is earth-centric. It's God-centric, yes, but it all takes place on the earth. Interestingly, when God creates the sun and the moon in verses 14 to 18, He doesn't even bother to call them by those or any, any names, referring to them only by that which they produce for the benefit of this earth. Note the perspective in these verses as I read it. Verses 14 to 18. <clears throat> then God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, that is, on the earth. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years, that is, on the earth. And let them be for lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. So God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, the lesser light to rule the night that is, on earth, and also the stars. And God placed them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, and to rule the day and the night, and to separate the light from the darkness, that is, on earth. And God saw that it was good. Before we begin our dissection of the text, and fair warning, there's, let's see, yeah, ver, uh, verse 1. In our next session, I I'm re- was reminded of, the, I meant to figure out what class it was, what book we were going through, but I I taught an entire session on one two-letter word, in. And we're going to be doing that in the next, something like that in the next session. I just want to attract you. I just want to <laughs> whet, the, whet your appetite. You run screaming into the night. Uh, yeah. Yeah. 
I need to address the first of two elephants in the room. The second I will address later with verse 2, but the first elephant in the room is the authorship of Genesis and the Pentateuch as a whole. We need to, we need to take, get this settled. Just as there are those who smugly speak of evolution or man-produced global climate change as an established scientific fact which, with which only ignorant knuckle-draggers would disagree, there is a group of biblical scholars who claim that the text of the Pentateuch we hold in our hands is actually a composite created from four separate documents or writers or schools of thought, compiled somewhere around 400 B.C. I'll let H.C. Leupold summarize this for us. He writes, Critics speak with much assurance as though the proof for their position were unassailable of the various sources that have been worked into the Pentateuch as we now have it. And they assure us that this composite work was finally compiled by an editor, commonly called Redactor, or R, after the time of the exile, perhaps as late as 400 B.C. The four major documents that have been worked into the Pentateuch are not only occasionally discernible in the work as a whole, but the cord has, as it were, been unraveled, and the four strands that compose it are laid before us side by side. The names given to these four documents or their authors are, first, the Eloistic document, written by the Eloist, abbreviated E, the Javistic or Yahwistic document, described as J, the Priestly document, or P, and the Deuteronomic document, or D. Some critics consider E, E, J, D, and P as persons. Others regard them as literary schools. That's H.C. Leupold. Many of us have seen or heard references to this literary criticism. As I will not be propounding this theory, I'll not waste time going into further detail. This class will take the more pedestrian approach of believing what the Bible says about the Pentateuch's authorship. How odd. Especially when especially what God's Son Himself said about its authorship. Repeatedly in the Gospels, Jesus refers to Moses as the author of what is written in the first five books of the Bible. For example, on four separate occasions as listed in the handout, the references are listed... Oh, the handout. Should be enough for everybody. Carolyn, you already have yours. Let's look at just one of those references, those four references. And note, Luke 20. Turn to Luke 20, please. Note that these four references listed in the handout, these are not parallel passages. 
just four different versions of the same event. No, these are four different occasions where Jesus made reference to Moses being the author. Luke 20. Let me get there. Luke 20, verse 37. Jesus speaking. Who has it? I do. I'm just waiting for everybody's Thank you. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the burning bush, for he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. There is. So we should disagree with the Son of God as to the authorship of Genesis? I don't think so. Not in this class. We take this, our text, chapters 1 to 11a, to be revelation with or alongside of retentive memory. That is, Ancient man, who often had nothing better at hand, possessed a retentive memory that would shame most of us today. I know it shames me. During Adam's long lifetime, language and writing did indeed develop, but the accurate, almost photographic memory of people, events, and sequence passed down from every generation to the next, told from father to son, generation after generation, and it was remembered, it was recalled, word for word. And it was in many ways more reliable and often more available than memory today, which is so dependent on writing, recording, still, and video images, and computers. Although individuals such as Moses might have had at hand some ancient writings, or chronicles indeed, from which to glean information, the ancient mind for such things was far more developed than that of modern man. Or more precisely, the memory muscle in people today has almost atrophied from disuse. We have replaced human memory with ubiquitous internet search. We don't have to remember anything anymore. It's all archived somewhere, and we just call it up. Not necessarily a bad thing. There's nothing wrong with that. But as a result, our memories have gotten lazy. We just can't remember things. And then you add a little age to that, and you're in real trouble. That's the excuse I'm using anyway. This was not always the case, not just in ancient times, but even as late as the early days of this nation, when people had to rely more on their memory than we do today. Beyond that, however, and even more trustworthy, is that to Moses, Yahweh revealed this history. Just as he revealed to the Apostle John the future history of the Apocalypse. See previous class. These two combined, revelation and retentive memory, give us a solid foundation by which to study the text and 
take it to be the reliably accurate writings of just one man, the Spirit-inspired Moses. So, verse 1. Okay, good. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The The first three words in our Bible translate two Hebrew words, Bereshit, which translates to the English first or original beginning. First beginning. I like what Matthew Henry has to say about this. In the beginning, that is, in the beginning of time, when that clock was was first set a-going, time began with the production of those beings that are measured by time. Before the beginning of time, there was none but that infinite being that inhabits eternity. Should we ask why God made the world no sooner? We should but darken counsel by words without knowledge, for how could there be sooner or later in eternity? Matthew Henry. Some, such as Young's literal translation, would make verse 1, quote, in the beginning of God's preparing the heavens and the earth. Now, do you hear the difference yet? In the beginning, God did this. Or, in the beginning of God's preparing the heavens and the earth. Which makes the first three verses into one continuous statement. As here, here's how Salehammer paraphrases it. As this is how Salehammer paraphrases the perspective of Young's literal translation. Quote, When God set about to make the heavens and the earth, dash, the world being then a formless state, or a formless waste, dash, God said, let there be light. Do you see the difference? Do you hear the difference? I'll read it again. When God set about to make the heavens and the earth, the world being then a formless waste, God said, let there be light. Or in the Old Testament and American translation, in which Genesis was translated by Theophil J. Meek, here's how he has it. When God began to create the heavens and the earth, the earth being a desolate waste, with darkness covering the abyss and the Spirit of God hovering over the waters. Then God said, let there be light. A purely grammatical case can indeed be made for this. I am, of course, doing you the courtesy of not wading into all that grammatical logic. And everyone said amen. But none of our common versions, NASB, ESV, NIV, King James... This one. Take that line. You'll note. None of your Bibles. I hate to jump in here, but it's the only one that makes sense to me. Which one? This one, the, what, what you just read. Really? Because God existed in eternity past. Mm-hmm. Uh, we know that mankind's only been here a few thousand years. Well, what was God doing? If, if this was it, if, the, if everything we know of began... 10,000 years ago then what was God doing in eternity past? No, that's not really what that's saying. It'll come clear in a moment. Stay with me. Now, come back at me if this does not resolve this for you. But gently. (laughs) The problem with this alternate reading, the one I've just read, 
as Salehammer points out, is that, quote, according to such a reading, the world as unformed material would have been present when the first act of creation was performed. That's the problem. That being God's command in verse 3, let there be light. The first act of creation would have been, under that understanding, would have been the creation of light from darkness. Instead, we hold that the I'm now okay, end quote. Instead, we hold that the text says that God's first act of creation was creating the heavens and the earth. That is, as stated earlier, creatio ex nihilo, from nothing, creating something from nothing. So, in other words, the difference is <clears throat> from this. Okay, the, the one I just wrote, the spurious ones. They're saying, when God decided to start creating things, there was this shapeless mass over here called the earth. And we say, no, no. One of the, fir- the first thing God did was create that earth. Now, I will argue later, in subsequent sessions, I will argue that he created something that was not complete. He did not create the earth as we know it now. It's described that way in the text. We'll see. But he created that first. So, oh, and and creation from nothing. I, I like the way Leupold paraphrases this elsewhere. The beginning was made by God. That's good. The beginning was made by God. One of his creations, first creations, was the beginning. So, in the beginning, God. Remember, Moses is writing this as an explanatory historical account for the benefit of the Hebrew nation, the people of which are already familiar with the standard names or references for their God. This is important because this is those who follow the, the critical theory with EJDB, four different people writing this and just someone else compiling it, is that they say, well, see, he uses Elohim here, but he uses Yahweh here. He uses God here. No, that's not necessary to have different authors to do that. And that's, that's why I'm bringing this up. The Hebrew nation was already familiar with the names or references for their God. El or Elohim. Adon, or Adonai, and Yahweh, which would have been written W-H-Y-H without vowels. So he begins this account. He employs the reference that best fits the moment. Here, it's Elohim. By the very reference chosen by that one word, Moses paints a word picture that every Israelite can understand. Who else but almighty, all-powerful, majestic, Elohim could have spoken all that is into existence. He's not referencing a God of love, compassion, buddy-buddy. He's saying all-powerful Elohim. As Leupold puts it, quote, God's omnipotence outshines all other attributes in this account. Omnipotence rouses man's reverence and holy fear rather than his love. 
In other words, it brings the Creator to man's notice rather as Elohim than from any other point of view. So, put this in perspective. Moses is not introducing to the Hebrews who Hebrews, the God who created the heavens and the earth, as if he were asked, which God created all that is? Pick one. No, he's answering the question, how did the heavens and the earth come into being? And the answer is, the one you bow before in holy reverence. The one before whom you quaked in fear at Sinai. That was Elohim. He made all that is from absolute nothingness. Remember the story there at Sinai. He says, okay, get ready. Go, go take a bath. Get all ready. Put on fresh clothes. We're going to worship God. He's going to visit us. And they were so petrified, they said, Moses, don't ever do that again. Any time he wants to come visit, you go. We're, we can't do that. That was Elohim. And he said, that God, Elohim, made the universe. The Apostle Paul verifies the interpretation of creatio ex nihilo in his letter to the Romans. Romans 4.17, As it is written, a father of many nations have I made you, in the presence of him whom he believed, even God, who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. As does the writer to the Hebrews. Hebrews 11.3 By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. So what did God do? God created the heavens and the earth. Verse 1 concludes with the object of his creation. What did he create? What did Elohim create? The heavens and the earth. Let's look at the three operative words in turn. First, created. The Hebrew is barah. And it's only ever used of divine activity. It never references man, just divine activity. And expresses, quote, the origination of something great. New, epic-making, as only God can do it. End quote. That's loophole. The word itself does not have to mean something from nothing. That's not built into the word as it is. Something from nothing. But the context does. In that when no existing material is mentioned, no such material is implied. So, let's look at an example of that. An example that happens to contain both. Isaiah 65, please. Turn there, please. Isaiah 65. These two verses, 65 verses 17 to 18, have an example of both. Ex nihilo and not Ex nihilo. Isaiah 65, verses 17 to 18. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered or come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem as a rejoicing, 
and her people a joy. So there the same word, bara, is used to describe the creation of the new heavens and new earth, from nothing, ex nihilo, as well as the creation of Jerusalem and its people, not out of nothing, not ex nihilo. The second word is heavens. As we've seen in other studies, the word translated heavens here in the Hebrew, shamayim, is a flexible word, and it's the same in Greek. It works the same way in Greek in the New Testament. A flexible word that can, depending on the context, refer to the sky overhead, endless space, or God's dwelling place. Same word is used for for them all. It's the context that tells you which. So collectively, that word means the upper regions. Hebrew has no word for universe which is how we might interpret this statement. If we're correct that God's dwelling place predates creation and dwells on a different plane, then that would not be included in his creation of the heavens. Finally, earth. In this heavens, God created specifically the earth the stage on which everything will be played out in the rest of his word. From Eden all the way to this earth's destruction and its replacement with, as mentioned in Isaiah 65, 17, a new earth, which will then become the stage for everything that plays out into eternity future. And parenthetically, it occurs to me that this is a pretty good argument against other civilizations in the universe. If we believe this book, God's Word, if we take it as literal truth, well, it says that when He created the universe, that boundless universe, all the stars, planets, solar systems, everything, says clearly, what, he, what did he make it for? This earth. The sun. He didn't make the sun and the moon for Jupiter. He made the sun for this earth. Before he even calls it the sun. He says he made it for this earth. It, this, it's all about this earth. This is where the drama of God's redemption of man plays out here. The word, translated earth, is Eretz, which is the entire solid earth in contrast to the heavens. That is, if the heavens are the upper regions, the earth is that which is lower. Oh boy, is it lower. This word can refer to the material earth, the ground, or is also used to refer to the totality of the planet. Again, a flexible word. In fact, to the Hebrew mind, the phrase, the heavens and the earth, would have been a common figure of speech expressing totality. It's just another way to say everything there is. And here we see the beginnings of what we'll see as we proceed through the creation epic. 
that is an orderly, systematic creation. We'll see as we proceed further into Genesis 1 and 2 that God employs what might be termed a form-and-fill method. By that I mean He creates first the container, followed by what goes into that container to be kind of crass about it. That is, for example, in day one, day and night he creates, day and night, with the sun and moon to fill and rule them on day four. Creates them later. He doesn't do it all at once. Waters above and below in day two, with birds and fish to fill and rule them on day five. Land and vegetation on day three, with land mammals to fill and rule them on day six. And that applies as well to the creation of the the earth itself, the globe. He creates it, but it's, it's in a dark, shapeless form. Later it becomes what it, what it, what, as we know it. Behind these few simple words in verse 1 of God's Word, we see the beginning of its perspective. Yes, there will now be a vast, apparently endless universe of stars and planets and other fantastical creations. But all of that is just above. If something is above, then there must be something over which it is above. There must be something below that which is above. If there's a ceiling, there must be a floor. Here in these words we see God's perspective. This is the perspective of Elohim. There is a foundation, as it were, to His creation. It's not the sun or the moon or any other planet, but specifically this earth, this globe. Just as man himself, once he is created, will be special on this earth, the earth itself is special in all of creation. Now we need to consider how Moses is using verse 1. Why verse 1? What does verse 1 contribute to the creation epic? There's all kinds of positions on this. More than I think you probably can imagine. How does it fit in? Do we see it as a title, a preface, or a summary of what will be restated in greater detail later? Or is it merely the first portion of a longer statement that is made in the first three verses? Also, is Moses intentionally referring to the Trinity when he uses the plural Elohim? Let's consider this last point first. What does it mean that the word Elohim is plural? To be precise, get this, there may be a test. Elohim is masculine, plural, absolute. Leupold calls it a potential plural, and I like that. That's good. Potential plural. I'll explain. 
by this he means that we go too far to conclude that this is a purposeful reference by Moses to the Trinity as we know it. We New Testament believers have a a specific image, a specific idea of the Trinity. Is that what Moses is saying? Is that what he's referring to by using the plural for Elohim or El? Leupold claims that we go too far if we think that. But we also go too far to conclude that there is no reference at all here to the Trinity. And there are camps on both sides of those extremes. Here's what Leupold writes. The term Elohim allows for all that which the fuller unfolding of the same old truth brings in the course of the development of God's kingdom. <laughs> Leupold's starting to sound like John. Yeah. Um, when, then, ultimately the truth concerning the Trinity has been revealed, as it is in the New Testament, the fullest resources of the term Elohim have been explored as far as man needs to know them. We might think of this as a placeholder of sorts. The Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown commentary helpfully puts it this way, a little clearer than Leupold. By its use here in the plural form is obscurely taught at the opening of the Bible a doctrine clearly revealed in other parts of it. Namely, that though God is one, there is a plurality of persons in the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit, who were engaged in the creative work. Now, if you're still confused, I see a few blank stares out there. We might explain it this way. Moses himself could not know the fullness of the triune Godhead. But the Spirit had him use a word for God that would permit that fullness to be realized by those who would follow. That's us. Especially after the Incarnation. We see this elsewhere in in prophecies. Do all the prophets of the Old Testament, did they know what they were saying? (laughs) the spirit had him use words that okay you're telling me okay I'm just writing I'm just the pen but we later it isn't that we're smarter it's that we have the full revelation in Christ and then we have a better picture of what's going on meanwhile the spirit had Moses put that placeholder there Moses may have thought, Elohim, why am I using plural here? Okay, okay, I'll do it. Yet, verse 1 is more than just a freestanding introductory or summary statement. For such a preface would not be followed by and in the next verse, which is the first word of verse 2 in the Hebrew text, and. No, we see verse 1 as describing the opening acts of creation and, along with verses 2 to 5, part of the 
initial day. We could draw a number of conclusions from this, but perhaps the most immediate and obvious is that this is a first expression of God's grace, His common grace. The grace that envelops all people on this entire globe. When Linda's garden gets watered by refreshing rain, we thank God. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for hearing our prayer for rain. We're dry. By the way, we're still dry. Our neighbor, who is not a believer, gets the same rain. That's common grace. We saw this earlier, for example, in verses 14 to 18 of chapter 1, where the universe overhead is created explicitly for the benefits of the earth. Everyone on the earth. Usually. We'll see later. Everything in that passage is earth-centric. The heavenly lights were not created as mere objects of beauty or for the benefits of Mars or Jupiter or for the far distant Vulcan planet home of Spock, but specifically for planet Earth, this planet. The imagery reveals a God who considers this planet, and of course its people, as not just another anonymous component in an endless sea of anonymous components, but as something dear to him. A place where he would reveal himself more fully than anywhere else. Where his story would be enacted and told. And where, as we see in Revelation 21, he will dwell now on a new earth with his loved ones for all eternity. This book ends not in heaven. This book ends on earth. A new earth. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne, saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and He will dwell among them, And they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. Revelation 21, 1-3 We do not spend eternity with God in heaven. God spends eternity with us on earth. And at that time, the sun is gone. We don't need it anymore, because we've got the sun on earth in his temple. The Father and Son, they will be our light. Few minutes left, just a few minutes. Any thoughts? Did we cover that, Greg? Did we? We did. I, I still have fundamental concern, or not concern. I know that God existed in eternity past. It's easy for us to kind of get a handle on eternity future is the in the beginning here is not referencing the beginning of God. No. Our beginning. Our beginning. Yes, everything is all about earth-centric, etc., etc. 
so then there is a unknown eternity past relative to God, not relative to us, but relative to God that I'm puzzled by. Uh, Even after we covered that in the first session? Were you not here for the first session? Ah, ah, okay. Now the light bulb goes off. Go to my website and okay. read. That's where we covered that. Okay. And, and I'm sure you came to the conclusion of what all God's been doing in eternity past, before creation of the earth, right? You figured that all out. Well, there was bowling. There was... Uh, <laughs> I, I, I knew you did. I knew it. See, that's why... I, have my website you can go get the notes I don't I don't have to dredge it all up from memory because as we know memory fades uh, go to the website it's all there I yes ma'am that was ironic we only covered the first two verses in Genesis but no just verse one. Oh, verse 1 and Moses when God started talking to him he said get somebody else I, I'm not good with speech and yet look what he did with because he wasn't writing it. He was just the pen. It's just, it's just all the more to realize yeah. that it was the Spirit of God that told them how to write. Mm-hmm. Greg. Second Peter 2, verses, or chapter 1, verse 20 to 21. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Leave it to Greg to have the confirming verse. Thank you. Yeah. There's also John Juan. Mm-hmm. Who was there in the beginning? Mm-hmm. I'm still trying to come down. Feel like I've been up in the heavens. Well, but I, I just think I appreciate you uh, focusing, saying that. The earth was what God focused on when he created it. And that is a good argument against aliens and other... Yeah, I, I just brought that up parenthetically. I, I'm, I'm not going to... I think that's a good... You know, that's in Jesus, God, coming to be human flesh here on earth. Uh, yeah, you know, that's he didn't go to Jupiter. It's, it's invariably the case. When you're going to teach a certain portion of God's Word and you start digging into it, you start reading it and, and reading it again and reading it again, it starts, the, the pattern tends to lift off the page and slap you in the face. And that's something that really slapped me in the face was that, wait a minute, this is all about Earth. From the very beginning... Right away, it goes to earth, and everything that God creates is for earth. Even things light years away, they're for earth. I thought about that myself many, many, many times. And I've read through Scripture much. I've never seen anywhere in Scripture, uh, especially from Jesus, where he's He's mentioned anything about, you know, the people of Earth or anywhere else in my creation. But you could easily he he or the scripture could easily have 
just done a, oh, by the way, or a, a quick aside comment about not just here, but, and it's never that way. And then what Dennis said about <clears throat> coming as a human, Jesus is going to be in human form for all of eternity. He mm. picked. He didn't come as a he, he he didn't come as a muskrat, did he? He no. came as a person. Right. Yeah, human being. And and so it's clear that earth is special and then as it plays out as the narrative plays out, we see that people are special. We're we're special on earth and in all creation. Doesn't mean that everything else is worthless. It just means that we're special. God knew what he was doing. Which says, belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed to us and to our sons forever that we may observe all the words of this law. And if he'd have wanted us to know about other life, other works, he'd have told us. Yeah. You guys have pulled us. Into this, I'm. I'm sorry. I. I'm sorry. I mentioned this. We all want aliens. Yeah, let's let's talk aliens. I think it was great to bring it up. Our whole world is deceived by the whole sci-fi alien scenario. Well, now watch it. Linda and I like good a good sci-fi. I'm not saying I don't want. But don't be deceived. No class the next two weeks. No class. No class the next two weeks. Gives me a chance to really. I'll, then I'll really dig in. I'll tell you. Father, thank you for this time gathered around your word. Thank you for the knowledge you have shared with us. Thank you for your spirit who makes sure, just as he did with Moses, makes sure we get it right. We thank you. We give you the praise and glory for this. Amen.